Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Trevor Horn started small and became huge. He spent his early career as a session musician, playing bass on cheap and nasty albums of cover songs. But his massive success as one-hit wonder Buggles gave him entry to the big leagues, and before long, he was producing landmark records with ABC, Malcolm McLaren, and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Renowned as an early champion of then-new electronic technology, Horn traced his remarkable story alongside Torsten Schmidt in his 2011 Red Bull Music Academy lecture. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Join me in welcoming right now, Mr. Trevor Horn, please. Hello. Hello. Now, in preparing this thing, um, I think I try to concentrate on the most important bits and the essential playlist um, features only 52 tracks now. <laughs> so, um, bathroom breaks? No. It's, it's going to be painful and long, but we try to... You're not playing all 52 of them, are you? Um, I guess we... I already tried okay. to exemplify a little bit, and I think we're just going to concentrate on a few okay. of them. But there's actually one track in there which is not by you, and I would like to you probably while we start playing it and listen to it for a second, afterwards elaborate on why we should care about a song like that. So, I presume this is on here. Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to couch wisdom. So if you were a radio DJ, what would you say right after the song now? Oh, I'd say that was Dion Warwick singing Walk On By, written by Backrack and David. First released, I think, in probably 1963, 64. I don't know the exact date. That's the first record that really, apart from the Beatles, that really got to me. I love that record. It's such a beautiful song, and I've always loved the way she sings. She sings very straight, like a saxophone. She doesn't sort of mess around and jump all over the place, you know? Well, she does a few little jumps, but it's an amazing voice. I always think of voices like the tip of an iceberg. There's a whole load more underneath it, but you hear the top of it, and it's beautiful. So it's probably pretty much the contrast to what you would see in like a TV casting show these days. <laughs> Oh, God, yes, it would be the opposite, yeah. Well, I mean, some people do a lot of it. I think it's called melisma or something. Some people like to do that. She was, she just had, I mean, she still sings. She's an amazing singer. In fact, in fact, I got to speak to her on the phone because I did some music for, for a movie, Ali, you know, where, where uh, Will Smith played Ali. I did, a, I did the first 12 minutes of the music, and it was, um, it was, um, a Sam Cooke concert, and the only person that we could find to sing it was, uh, was her son, funnily enough. And we only found him the day, before, the day before he was due to join the LA police force. 
which was a rather odd thing. He said, if you hadn't got me this gig, I would have been in the police. So I said, does that mean we can't smoke this? He said, no, 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 said, you're all right. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's legal in LA anyway, do you yeah. say, so yeah. And Sam Cooke sang so high, you know, it's, I mean, if you listen to something like um, Bring It All Back Home, he actually sings it in the key of C, and so he's singing top Cs, you know, with, in full voice, which is, takes some doing. Yeah, I mean, normal um, vocalists would have to go to falsetto straight away after, like, what? Yeah, after about, an, whatever. Yeah, after about an A, probably, a lot of guys have to sing in falsetto. Yeah. Um, any other Sam Cooke recommendations on that note? Well, yeah, if, you, if, if you're into Sam Cooke, the best thing to listen to of Sam Cooke's is a live show that he did in Miami. Uh, it's the one that we copied for that film. Um, it's quite amazing. He, I mean, he was, a lot of those singers were good, though, because they grew up singing in church, like Dionne Warwick grew up singing in church. And so they, they, they really learned how to sing. Yeah, and how to take care of their voice. So, yes, uh, excuse, exactly. Excuse me for the lozenger break. Um, where were you around that time when you heard that record? I was, I was actually, um, when I first heard that record, I was playing with the youth orchestra. I used to play double bass. And uh, I was away at a sort of similar kind of thing to this. We, you know, when, when you're in an orchestra, when you're young, they take you away for the weekend. And uh, we used to stay in a castle and rehearse a piece of music and then give a concert on a Sunday afternoon. And I heard that record. I was just listening to that record all the time because I liked it so much and thinking, that's the kind of music I want to do, not this. <laughs> this is too hard. We were doing Tchaikovsky's first symphony and it has a hell of a bass part in it. So um, how did your bass playing career evolve from Tchaikovsky then? Well, you see... My dad was a my dad was a bass player part time. You know, he used to sort of play five nights a week to earn extra money. And when I was a kid, I taught myself. I you know I I, I learned to play the recorder. You know, I think I think is it called the same as a, reco a recorder, little flute thing. I had I really had no idea that, that 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 I was particularly musical because the way they taught us music at school was so boring that I wasn't interested. But when I got the recorder. I really, I really got into it, and they used to have me playing recorder with every day for the hymns, you know, when when we sang in uh, before school, and that was, and I suppose I learned from playing the recorder. I learned how to read for the bass because my father played bass. He showed me, he showed me how to play way down upon the Swanee River, and I kind of worked it out from there. And um, I used to debt for him, you know, some when I was twelve. Sometimes if he couldn't make the first set with his dance band, I'd go and play the first set. And, uh, but then, you know, when I was about 13, he got a bass guitar. And uh, bass guitars were so different to the double bass. My father was thrilled with it because he said, what's great about the bass guitar now is all those guys that used to spend years bluffing on the double bass because you couldn't hear them. Now you can really hear them. And so they better play the right notes. And... <laughs> And so by the time I was sort of 16 or 17, I was like the only guy around who could read for the bass guitar. Lots of people could play rock and roll on it, but I could actually read so I could do work in dance bands and things like that. And that's kind of how I started playing all of that, you know, old Frank Sinatra stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> I was going to ask you, um, when you're saying dance band, like what era are we talking there and what were the tunes that you learned first to play on that bass I've guitar? I've got you under my skin, you know, old Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby. 
um, Dean Martin, you know, all of that stuff from the 50s and the, and the 40s. And, um, you know, there was some great dance band music. There were, you know, like um, my father's favorite band was Tommy Dorsey. And there, was, there were things like, you know, when the quail went to San Quentin, have you ever heard that? Summit Ridge Drive, all those sorts of things. I used to get very bored with it. I used to practice letting my nose run and seeing how far it would go and things like that. <laughs> so I was so bored. And I, and I used to get into trouble because a couple of times I got a bit drunk and, and I was rude to the drummer. I remember my father telling me off for that because I was only 15. But um, I guess I, the thing was, I used to get paid for it. Because what I really wanted to do at that particular point in time is I really wanted to be Bob Dylan. And I was, a, I was a completely unashamed Bob Dylan imitator. I had the harmonica and I could sing any Bob Dylan song, just about, you know, up to sort of 1964, 65, 66, before, need... he, before he did John Wesley Harden. So do we need to get a guitar in here and you give us your Bob Dylan renditions? Oh, I don't think so. You don't really want to hear it. I mean, huh? nobody can say it. I've, I've often thought it would be a great idea to get Bob Dylan to do something like, you know, Bob Dylan sings the songs of Diane Warren, you know, or something like that. Love lives in something we belong. You know, some corny old tunes. But anyway. How did you get to be a session guy then? Well, oh, you see, there's all different kinds of session guys. I, I used to do a lot of sessions because I could read. So, you know, I, I do those awful albums that you see in the shops, you know, where it's 30 pop hits, you know, for, well, they used to be 30, 30 pop hits for, for like two bucks, you know. And you mean the ones where you're really annoyed when you're a kid and you're spending like five, five currency, whatever, yeah, off your those. pocket money and like, that's not what I wanted. No. Absolutely, yeah. But they, pay, they used to pay good money and you, have to do, you used to have to do them very quickly. You'd do something like 12 songs in an afternoon. And I used to play bass on them, but I always used to, I also, for a brief period of time, I, was, I did Brian Ferry's songs as well. I used, they, used to, they used to say, you're the only guy we can find who sings out of tune. Because um, Brian Ferry sings, I mean, God bless him, sings out of tune. So I do the Brian Ferry songs. And the funny thing was, we used to do them all in one take. You know, you just wait outside and then you go in and it would be, you know, let's stick together, come on, come on, let's stick together. And, uh, <laughs> and then it was done. And I remember being in a restaurant one time and some music was playing and I thought, Jesus, that's awful. What the hell is that? It was me singing Tokyo Joe. <laughs> so... Well, um, well, I did other kinds of sessions too, but you know, I played on radio jingles, and even after I had the first hit, I could still, I would still hear jingles that I played the bass on, you know, that were still going years, years later. But you only get one payment, so. I lived with Tina Charles. I was a boyfriend for a while, uh, which, believe me, was a dangerous occupation. Um, In what respect? Well, Tina, Tina could drink more than most men. I know, and when she'd had a few drinks, she could cause more trouble than anybody I ever knew. But she was a good singer. <laughs> Are you still bruised? Pardon? Part of me is, yes. Funny enough, I, I, I met her again a few years ago. She came and sang with us. She hadn't changed one bit, really. She was, I still like her, but you know, she was kind of crazy. And that was a B-side, because her producer was a guy called Bidu. And he produced... He was um, an Indian guy. He was a, 
He was a good, he was a good producer. He produced um, Kung Fu Fighting, you know, everybody was Kung Fu, that one. And I Love to Love. She did I Love to Love whilst I was living with her. In fact, in fact... How did that make you feel then? Well, I didn't play on it. I thought it was great. When, when, when Bidu played me the song, I mean, I was, you know, back then I was very much Tina Charles's boyfriend. I wasn't, you know, a producer or anything. And, uh, and so, you know, I was kind of always behind her or in the corner of the room. And I love to love, when, I, when, when Bidu played her the song, I told her I th that's a really good song. But what was more important was she came home with a backing track. And it was the first time in my life that I'd ever heard a backing track. And I mean, that sounds kind of funny, but I was trying to produce records and I, was, I wasn't doing very well with it because I didn't find it easy at first. And I, didn't, you know, I couldn't quite get the backing track right. And listening to the backing track for I Love to Love was like a really educative thing for me. I learned so much from it. I learned, I, it was so simple, it was cold, it was clear. Nobody played anything that they shouldn't play, you know? It was, I studied it and, and I learned a lot from it. But I never played on a record. Now, I think that was the first one of hers that I played on. And Bidu just let us do it as a B-side, you know, just to keep her happy. So that was Tina. Did I produce that? Um, I was just double checking because it's like the first time you're actually credited as a producer. I think, yeah, I think yeah. you did produce that, yeah. So, well, Bidu had produced John Howard before, but Bidu was a good dance producer, but he wasn't very good with artists because producing dance records and producing artists is an entirely different thing. Um, and uh, so I, I did about three or four tracks with him, and that was one of them. It, it, They turned out pretty well, and he got a deal with them, but I don't think they sold. He, he was a lovely guy, very gay, very over-the-top camp, and uh, he's still going, he's still going. He wrote to me last week, funny enough, to invite me to something, so I still stay in touch with that. I haven't heard that one for a long time, though. It's kind of interesting, I mean, looking back now, obviously we might not have like the right notion of where it stands in the point of time, but... Um, It definitely draws from like the Steely Dance and certain West Coast kind of things on the other hand and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, Steely Dan, but Steely Dan, we loved Steely Dan. I mean, in the 70s, the, those records were, were you know, if you were a musician, they were so good because they were pop, pop, but they were great pop, you know? What made them great pop for you? Well, the arrangements, the way people played, the, the chord structures, the intelligence of the lyrics, it was just, great stuff you know an album like pretzel logic it sounded so good too they really made an effort to make the records sound good and uh, i think you know there were a few people around like that you know 10 cc as well were, were, were sounded great back then so i guess yeah that right. and um it's funny you're playing this style i haven't heard these for ages i don't um now the next rule. one Probably we play it quickly off here and then we move to your computer there. Because oh, right. uh, people, now this one, uh, if you were a three or four year old boy at the end of the 70s strapped in your mom's car in the back seat, this was your tune. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, not only the biggest tune in Tarfunk's Volkswagens, but also the first song ever to be played on MTV, I believe. Well, it was perfect for them, wasn't it? Because it sort of was their, 
it was their manifesto in a way. I know I had no idea that it, uh, what it would turn into when we did it, but uh, it's. I, I wrote this. I wrote the song originally with a guy called Bruce Woolley. I started writing songs. I was working as a producer, but I didn't write songs. I used to fix people's songs up, and. Uh, I discovered very early on that if somebody has a song that they've written and it's not right, and you rewrite it for them, especially if they're amateurs, as long as you don't claim any of the credit, they're really happy. <laughs> they don't mind. And they kind of start pretending it's theirs. I, I was astonished. But it can, it, can be, it can be a way of solving a problem, you know, if you've got a problem with a song. So I was fixing people's songs. And then I thought, this is stupid. I should, I should start writing songs again, you know? And... Uh, I had that, Bruce and I had that lyric, I heard you on the wireless back in 52, but we couldn't figure out where to go to from it, you know? It's a funny line. And we were, taught, we, we were reading lots of science fiction. Have you ever read a guy, a guy called J.G. Ballard? We were really reading J.G. Ballard a lot. And, uh, and also listening to Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk Man Machine was, was a huge influence at the time. You know, we just played it all the time because it was so different. And, you know, at the end of the 70s, it was, either, it was either rock, you know, Led Zeppelin, Elton John and all that crew, or it was punk. And I hated punk. I mean, I did, you know, because it was so unmusical. And I, I, I once went to a, sh to, a, to a show and I actually found myself throwing stuff at the band because I was so angry at how what awful was, it was. What band was that, for the record? I think uh, The Unwanted, I think they were called. And it was a song called Buried Underground. Ten feet underground, decomposing. I was like, get the fuck out of it. It's dreadful. <laughs> and uh, I, so I hated punk. I didn't like rock because the rock guys were all rock gods. They were all maestros. And I didn't feel like I was a maestro. But Kraftwerk was like, you could see the future when you, when you heard Kraftwerk. You could see, God, there's something new coming, something different. And, you know, different rhythm section, just a different mentality. So we had all of that. Jeff, well, myself and Bruce had that. And we wrote, we actually wrote this song probably uh, six months before we recorded it. Um, and we were just walking in the park one day. And you, you know the way if you, if, you, if you write lyrics, sometimes you can spend days looking for a line. And then it just goes bang. And there it is. And, and I said to Bruce, I've got it. Lying awake, intently tuning in on, on you. If I was young, it didn't stop you coming through. And then the whole thing about taking the credit for your second symphony rewritten by machine with new technology, and now I understand the problems you could see. That's what I could feel was coming, that it was all going to change, and technology was going to change the, the way music sounded. But the problem was, for me and Jeffrey, we, we had no access to any technology. Um, We tried renting an Oberheim sequencer once, and it cost, I remember it cost me 15 pounds, which is 15 pounds that I didn't really have, and I couldn't get the damn thing to work. I couldn't get a note out of it. It came with a manual that was German or part in German. It was really hard to operate. So we, fi we figured out ways of faking it by, by playing like a sequencer and putting echoes on things, you know? And if you had an echo, you could sort of make something sound a bit like a sequencer. So even though, you know, Video Killed the Radio Star was recorded in 1979, it's all played. There's no, there's not, no computers anywhere around the place, which is kind of funny because it sounds 
like it was sequenced. But that was what we were trying to do. The other, the other problem that we had with that back then was I didn't know how to edit two-inch multitracks. In fact, nobody had told me that you could do such a thing. Um, I, you know, I actually learned a lot about editing two-inch multitracks from Yes when I did 90125. Um, because they would edit multi-tracks like, 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 you know, to correct the drums. They'd take a quarter of an inch out. I'd never seen that done before. Um, so this meant, and, and, and the 16-track the, the machine or 24-track machine we did it on was very primitive, so you couldn't drop in. So you had to play the thing from one end to the other without a mistake. And I think by the time we got, to, we got the backing track for this, We'd been playing it for nearly 12 hours, which is a long time, and the drummer was really angry. And we had to put him on triple rate to get him to stay, because he kept saying, you're fucking mad, I'm going, I'm not playing this anymore, my hands are hurting. I said, please, you know, please, just let's have one more go. And Hans Zimmer was in the control room. He wasn't playing on it, but he was in the control room. And so it was, it, it was me, Jeffrey Downs, and a drummer called Paul, uh, Paul Robinson. And I brought the multi-track with me because I thought it might be interesting for you to hear what went down first, or a bit of it, and you wouldn't want to hear the whole thing. Is that okay, I mean, Tim? If that's so is this Tim, okay, Tim Widener? Yeah. <laughs> Tim's been, been my engineer on and off for 20 years, so I hope this is not too boring for him. Actually, that tape effect wasn't there. That's, a, that's just us rewinding a tape machine and recording it. Yeah, I guess it might be <clears throat> probably worth and put putting that multi-track later on on the desk over in the other room or so, and then maybe give it a little re-wrap re or so. Yeah, sure, as long as nobody nicks it, I'm fine with it, <laughs> as long as nobody steals it. Because uh, I don't really want it on the internet. But, uh, yeah, it's it's just piano, bass and drums. It's funny when I listen back to it. Nice. <clears throat> so... <clears throat> Yeah, you were um, mentioning a certain young man from Frankfurt in there uh, later who still claims his um, participation in this track um, to up his street credit these days. Well, he, he did participate in it. He, he was there. He was, like, he was part of the band at the time. The thing was, Jeffrey was such a great keyboard player that there wasn't really any room for Hans to play the keyboards. But Hans was, still is one of the most charming, nice people I've ever met, so... It was great to have around. Although I must say, after we did that take, he said, I don't think this is the one. And, I, and Jeffrey and I went, it's the one. <laughs> yeah, but um, how did he get into the group or into the room in the first place? I mean, Hans. What, yeah. Well, Hans had a profit five. And, uh, <laughs> and we, we, we'd only had a, a polymoog up to that point. The polymoog was a bit unstable. And it was a little bit limited. It couldn't remember sounds. The Prophet, Prophet 5 was the first synth I saw that would remember a sound. You know, you spend ages programming your sound and you could keep it in a, a bank. And Hans, the thing that Hans was always great at was uh, he always got great sounds, you know. He was a great programmer. And funny enough, he, he, he actually, there was a track on the, on the first Buggles album that he persuaded us to play. He, he, he recorded a, a time, some time code. He explained that he was going, that if we played to a click, which he laid down, then he would be able to overdub keyboards and lock the keyboards to the tape. And I was like, what? You mean have the keyboards play afterwards in time? Yes. I, was, I can't, how? I, I don't understand how that could be possible. There was a track called Johnny on the Monorail or something on the first album. 
so we spent ages. We, we recorded it to, to this click of his. And then Hans disappeared off into a room at the side. We didn't see him for a week. And then he came back and he'd, he'd done all of these overdubs that ran, you know, that big rack of synths that, uh, that, that he has in his place. And they were all banging away and playing with Johnny on the monorail relatively in time. I mean, not perfectly in time, but pretty much in time. The problem was didn't like any of the overdubs, so we didn't use it. <laughs> We'd already more or less finished it playing it by hand. It, was, it, it took me a long time to get into the eye. I still don't like MIDI very much. I find MIDI a bit inaccurate. You know, you can hear it sloppy. You mean unlike the Hollywood people? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was, we were talking about this last night. Because Hans really, he, he was into pro programming. That was his, that's what he was very good at. And when he first went to LA, that was what he did that was so different to everyone else. He could, make, he could do a piece of score and it was all in MIDI. And if you've ever worked in, you know, in film, it's, it's a crazy business. And they're constantly changing everything, constantly cutting bits out of the scene. And if you're an old style composer, you know, where you have the, the orchestration and uh, it, it, it's hell, you know, you know, getting the cues to fit. And Hans was the first guy that had a great big MIDI rig that could change cues instantaneously and could fake an orchestra in a convincing way. And of course, they loved it out there. He, you know, that's why he's, I mean, he's, he's a franchise now. He's, he has like 20 people, guys working for him. And if you ever get the chance to go and work for him, I strongly recommend that you do because he's a lovely man and he's helped a lot of people. You know, people like Harry Gregson Williams started programming for Hans. He's not a selfish, egotistical arsehole, you know, he's a good guy. I mean, some of those guys can be a bit like that, but he's, 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 he's nice and uh, if you ever get the chance, do it. And there's a good chance there's a Grammy involved for you as well. Oh, for for, me, for yeah. me? No, no, I mean, no, you got <laughs> oh, your later, no, yeah. Like well, it Grammy depends. on Oscar, yeah. Like, yeah. It depends if you can take the pressure, you know, because uh, when you're working on the, you know, I've done a couple of films and and uh, they're not easy and they can drive you, the people can drive you mad. And I think it's the most exhausted I've ever been. I, I did a film called Coyote Ugly. I did the music for that years ago. And I think that was the one of the hardest things I ever had to do in terms of hours. I saw Hans the other week, actually. He came, we, we did a sort of Buggles gig And Hans came and I said to him, you know, that, that film thing, Hans, it's not going anywhere, man. You should come and join the band again. Forget it. <laughs> He was doing Sherlock Holmes, you know, the new Sherlock Holmes film. Well, I do feel like we're rushing a little bit, but we're only at five out of 50. And yeah. like I said, this is uh, just the essence. That's Malcolm McLaren. It's Gib Double Dutch. That was 1982. I, I mean, I'm, I, I'd just done ABC, Lexicon of Love, and, and everybody wanted me to do another record like that. And Malcolm wanted to do a solo album. And I, I always, my wife, who was my manager at the time, said to me, uh, well, you can do Spandau Ballet. You'll make it, you'll, you'll, you know it'll be successful because they're a really good band. If you do this Malcolm McLaren thing, God knows what's going to happen because he's a weird guy. And uh, can you probably fill us in quickly Malcolm, what he did before? And, pardon? Like the things that he did before up until. Well, Malcolm was uh, Malcolm was the Sex Pistols manager, 
and uh, he was the guy that you know got them to swear on TV and designed all their clothes. He was a very he was an amazing guy to be with. He was so mad uh, in in a way, <laughs> but funny and great ideas. And I went to, you know, I had him over. I had him, my wife was a school, had been a school teacher, maths teacher, Jill, and she wanted to tell him off for punk rock, basically. She wanted to have a go at him. But when we met him, we were both so taken with him because he showed up, he had one of those funny Buffalo Girls hats on, you know, and he had a pair of trousers that sort of hung down at the back that looked as though he'd pooed in them. Uh, he looked very strange, but he was so char he was so funny and he played me he played me some music that i'd never heard before at the time and he told me some stuff that i uh, took my breath away he said that all the black kids in new york were listening to depeche mode i was like what what i don't get then he said and they do this thing with records they scratch records and he played me part of that tape that you heard at the start there the world's famous supreme team with jess Alada, superstar and whatever the, the the world's famous supreme team were two new york guys who basically um saved it they they, they worked a con on broadway you know um they used to do the the egg cups with the the coin underneath it you know and you and and the money they got from that, they used to spend doing this uh, radio show at three o'clock in the morning, which was all designed to get girls. But I never heard anything like it. I never heard scratching records. And just the idea that people in New York were into Depeche Mode was like, it was mind-blowing to me at the time anyway. And, and then he played me this South African township music. And he said, uh, I want to make a, a record of all of this stuff. And so... I was kind of, great, let's go. And uh, I think the first thing we did was we went to South Africa. And we were there two years before Paul Simon because Paul <coughs> Simon really mined the same musical scene with Graceland. But he was like two or three years um, behind us. We were, we, we were there first and we didn't take any psychiatrists with us. Um, and I, I know he had two psychiatrists with him when he went. But so we went to South Africa, and South Africa was like a weird place. I mean, obviously, that was during apartheid. Yes, like... big time apartheid. And uh, Malcolm had been there before me, and he, he, he collected all of these musicians who were musicians that the record labels there didn't like. Malcolm had found them because they probably had a bit of spirit. Who knows? So I walked into a studio, and there's like 15 Zulus and Kosas sitting and uh, it's like, hi, this is, and I was the big producer from England. Malcolm would tell them, you've got to do everything he says. And we were in the studio, we could, we could only work at nights, and we were in there for, for like 16 nights in a row. And we had the most fun time. We, they couldn't go out at night because if, if you were black, you weren't allowed to be in Johannesburg at night. It, you had to be bussed out back to Soweto. I actually went to Soweto with, with uh, with Malcolm, and we did one of the best songs on that record to me was Living in the Road in Soweto, which if, if, if you'd have seen Soweto in 1982, it was, a, it was like the dark satanic mills. It had a, there was no electricity. There was a great big pole of coal smoke above it. They already had that massive craft work thing right in the middle of Soweto, right? 
There's like a big coal craftwork kind of thing. In yeah, the, it, it was. It, I just remember seeing it in the distance and seeing the the coal smoke above it. And of, of course, things were different because you know, you know, we, we, when we were starting, I was, you know, I was sitting behind the desk or whatever, and everyone was sitting at the back, and this tall white guy came in and he said, is everything all right? Uh, do you like the studio? I said, well, the studio's not great, but it's all right. It'll be fine. He said, do you need anything? I said, well, I'd like a cup of coffee. And without thinking, I went, anybody else want a cup of coffee? I think, he kind of looked at me like that. I said, oh, no, nobody else wants a cup of coffee, no. So the guy went and got me a cup of coffee. They were, you know, that, it was a funny play. It was a weird vibe. And <laughs> after... But after I'd been there for a couple of uh, for a day or so, I asked them if they could, you know, I said, Jim, do you think you'd get me some pot? What's it like getting pot around here? They said, oh, we'll get you some pot. And so I gave them $20. And the next day, he came in with a carrier bag full of pot. I said, my God, hide that, quick. That's too much. I'll go to prison for that. Uh, would you like some? Here, have some. And I was giving them some. And, uh, and then I rolled the joint. And they were fascinated. Trevor, what are you doing? What are you doing? So it's really joy, yeah. Because they rolled it with newspaper, wet newspaper. So we all got to be really good friends. And Malcolm was kind of creating all the time and, you know, trying things out. But, but he was, you know, God bless him, he, was, he couldn't sing particularly. And, <laughs> I mean, he really couldn't sing. And uh, the first time, I, mean, I remember the first time he ever sang for me was in South Africa. And we, we had, uh, the song he was going to sing was uh, Jive My Baby. I think it was on the album. And uh, he won't mind me doing an impersonation of him. I mean, you know, because I, I, I did love him. And so I'm sure he would, he would if, wherever he is now, he's passed over. I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't mind. I said to him, Malcolm, today you've got to sing. I've got to hear you sing. And so he said, oh, it's no problem. I'll sing, I'll sing Jive My Baby. And it was probably about 11 o'clock at night. And all the all the musicians were sleeping at the back, and he went into the he went into the studio, and he was you know he was wearing his sort of cowboy hat, and uh, I said you have to put some headphones on, so he put the headphones on, and he was standing there, and I said Malcolm, and he went huh, huh, what what, I said I'm in the headphones, me in the headphones, oh oh all oh, right right right, I said the music will play through the headphones, and you sing along with it. You're in after after eight bars, he said eight bars. What's a bar? What do you mean? And I said, uh, eight bars, eight, eight times four beats. Oh, no, 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 it's too technical. Um, he said, uh, just you give me a cue. You go like that when, when it's time for me to sing. Right? So <laughs> the track started up, and it was a track a bit like that. So boom, ba -doom, boom, 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 ba -doom, boom, boom, whatever. Boom, ba -doom, boom, ba -doom, boom, ba -doom, boom, boom. And I'm thinking to myself, I'd better give him the cue a bit early, right? Just so maybe he'll come in on time. So, so he's standing there looking at me, and I gave him, I gave him the cue, and he kind of went, he went, Tina, Tina said you can just drive, you can drive, my baby. And of course, we kind of went, and everyone who was sleeping at the back woke up, because it was such an awful noise. And, and my old engineer, Gary, Gary Langan, has a tape of the session where I say, my God, he sounds like Jimmy Clitheroe, who was a, who was a com English comedian. He, he said he sounds like Jimmy Clitheroe on acid. And, uh, 
And uh, this little Zulu woman who, who was, who, who was uh, quite a piece of work said to me, do you ever? Malcolm can't sing. And I said, don't get involved, it's my problem. And <laughs> so after he'd sort of sung it, I went out and I said, Malcolm, um, you're not singing the tune really. You know, you need to sing. The tune goes, Tina, Tina says you can dress her. You, she loves it. And he said, do you want me to sing it like that? And I said, well, not exactly like that, but that's the tune. He said, I can't sing it like that. He said, no, no, no. He said, if you're looking for me to sing this in time and in tune, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I'm a wacky kind of guy, and that's all you're going to get, so you better figure out what you're going to do with it, <laughs> which is what I did. <laughs> but, we, but in the end, we made a, we made a whole record together, and, uh, and, and we had a good time. And when, when, when I left, when we left, it was, it was really sad because we paid, the, we, we paid all the musicians, you know, we didn't pay them proper money because we just didn't. But we gave them like 1,500 pounds each, which was incredible, for them was incredible because most of them lived in Soweto and they, you know, they had very little money. And I remember the guitar, saying to the guitar player, what are you gonna do when you get the big check? And he said, I'm buying a wife. And I said, buying a wife? How much is a wife? He said, oh, 600, 600 pounds. I said, but you've got a girlfriend. Ah, but I want a wife. <laughs> and uh, and we, were, we were staying in the only multiracial hotel in Johannesburg because I got, a, I got a call at about one in the morning. They said, there's some guy here in reception. You better come down. He says he knows you. It was the guitar player. And uh, he had a crate of special, like special brew um, that he was holding. And he had this terrified little woman who looked like she was about 18. And he was checking at the hotel. I always remember that. And he had the check. And I said, no, it's okay. He's, he's got the money. He'll be fine. And that was his honeymoon night. Mm. So there, anyway, I could talk about Malcolm for hours. You probably would move me along. But um, there was one moment in there when you said earlier, um, Malcolm said, told them, here's the big cheese record producer from England. Yeah. And you better do what he does. But How he tells you. How did that make you feel? I mean, you know, coming from like England, where it was at least a lot more multiracial like that, and then coming into this, into this environment where obviously, yeah, you're clearly white and part of a system that's you're probably not really supporting. Well, not at all. No, no. I do you know what? I I didn't have a single problem. I I I was really into thumb slap in the bass at the time, and everybody in the band wanted to learn how to thumb slap. So I was having thumb slapping classes with them. We got on well, musicians are musicians, it doesn't matter where you are. And, and I don't work in a way where I've never, I've never been somebody who's kind of, I mean, I'm dictatorial, I'm sure, and I'm sure a megalomaniac and all of those kind of things, but I'd, I'd like to think I'm not unpleasant, you know? And so, so it was a really good atmosphere. I knew it was gonna change. I mean, you can't keep something like that going, it was dreadful. And uh, I think, I th you know, well, well, it all changed a few years, thank God to Nelson Mandela. But uh, no, I didn't, feel, I didn't feel funny at all. I, I, I had a good time. You know, I enjoyed it. And, uh, and it was after that that we did Buffalo Girls, because if that's the next, if you're going to play that one. <laughs> it, it, it's difficult to wonder, it's difficult to know how 
crazy that record sounded back in 1982. People would, when they heard it, their sort of jaws would drop because it was so un, so unlike anything anybody ever heard. And funny enough, I got I, I, I got a phone call on, it's Wednesday today, Friday last week, a guy called Richard Russell phoned me up. Richard Russell runs XL Records, you know, that have the white stripes and, and he, came, he wanted to come around and see me and he'd been with Damon Albarn from Blur and Gorillaz and they'd been playing this track and they'd been on the internet and he said, do you know it was the first British rap record? I said, yes, I did know. <laughs> but so, you know, well, it's not something that many people are interested in. But uh, that was a trip because those two guys, we flew them over. It was one of those daft ideas. Malcolm wanted a single from Duck Rock to be to be Buffalo Girls. And Buffalo Girls, he played me the Piote Pete recording of it from the 1948 Folkways album, which just basically goes, where's Buffalo Girl? Go around the outside, round the outside. It's, just a, it's an old ho-dance kind of, ho-down, you know, country dancing sort of thing. And he wanted it to be the single, and oh, I had a real problem with that. I couldn't see it, I didn't know what to do with it. And we tried recording it, like the Piote Pete version down in Tennessee. It was, that was an experience in itself because it just was. Uh, but we don't have hours. But three minute Cliff's Notes version of that. Pardon? The three minutes Cliff Notes version of that, please. How did that? Well, Malcolm said, We're going to do Buffalo Girls. I've, I've got a group called the Hilltoppers. They're going to come and play. And we're in this studio called, uh, it was called Tri State Studios. And uh, the Hilltoppers showed up. And and they were they were they they were they were in a purple VW van that had that had carpet on the inside of it like purple carpet, and they they played at a lot of folk conventions. You know, there was a very old hilltopper who had a hat on saying the oldest hilltopper, and he was about ninety two, and then there were a few children who looked like they might have had interesting parents because they were boss eyed and a bit strange looking, and uh, and. <laughs> And they started to play. We, we, set, we set up some mics around them. They started to play. And they were awful. And Malcolm came over to me and said, this is awful. You're the producer. Get rid of them. Um, so, so I had to go over and I said, guys, that was great. That'll do for what we need. Thanks very much. Um, here's $50. And they were happy. And off they went in their purple VW. And I said to the guy who owned the studio, I said, do you think you could get us any musicians? And, he, and they, you know, it's southern states of America, they're very laid back. Yeah, yeah, she'll be able to. Utility pickers? I said, yeah, utility pickers, that's it, we need some of them. And so he said, yeah, yeah, yeah give, me, give, me, give me some time and I'll, I'll, I'll get on the phone. So a bunch of guys showed up and they all look, had that sort of slightly tough, hard-bitten sort of American kind of look. Uh, until they smiled. And uh, they didn't know, you know, I, I, we, we, we set up, and they could obviously play really well. And they were, you know, they were a crazy bunch of guys. I remember going to the toilet at one point, and there's about five of them doing great big lines of blow off the, off the, the sink, you know, in the toilet. And uh, pretty quickly, I had to put Malcolm into a soundproof area and take him out of their headphones, because he had his buffalo hat on and he just completely lose his place and throw everybody totally out of sync you know you know i mean he really he, 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 yeah and they'd be looking at me going 
what you gonna do with this? And I was, well, I'm, I'm gonna do something with it. It'll be all right, don't worry. <laughs> anyway, after we'd done that, Markham said, we got the single, that's great. And I'm thinking, you've got the single? No way. Um, so it's one of those moments at dinner, he said, I wanna do a scratching record now, scratching rapping record called E.T. Come Home, about E.T. And, and I said, why don't we do a rapping scratching version of Buffalo Girls? And he said, yeah, good, thank God, we might be in with a chance now. And he flew those two guys over from New York, the world's famous Supreme team, who showed up in England. They didn't know what was going on. They couldn't, they thought Markham was like some weird guy from God knows where. And uh, they didn't even bring their decks with them. So we had to get onto the, um, the record label in New York that, you know, so there was like three days where we couldn't do anything while they went to a shop, bought the decks with the Stanton cartridges, and then they, they were flown over. Somebody from Charisma Records got on a plane and brought them over to England. And I didn't, you know, it was one of those things where I, I didn't really know where to start with them because I, I said, you know, this thing you do with the records, scratching the records, it's amazing. I've got this thing here called a Fairlight and it does the same thing with digital audio. Let me show you. You know, the possibilities are endless. And they looked at the Fairlight. No, man, that's whack. And I was like, what does whack mean? Because um, I hadn't heard all of that kind of opposite sort of language at the time either. And, and I, anyway, I said to them, we're, we're going uh, to make this rapping record. So what you need to do is show me what your favorite beat is. So they kind of sung me their favorite beat, which was like, you know, boo-doo, jack, boo-boo, jack, dum, boo-doo, jack, boo-boo. And I had, a, I had an Oberheim rig where I had a DMX, a DSX, and a, a keyboard. And I managed, it took me hours because they kept going, no, 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 like this, to get the sort of swing element of it right. But, you know, after about four hours, I had boo-doo, and I just threw in some bass thing that went bomb, 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 just to give it a bass. And they really liked it. They were like, hey, this is, this is good, man. This is happening. And I said, now we've got to wrap this over it. And then I showed them the lyrics to Buffalo Girls. And they went, nah, nah, we can't do that. That's Ku Klux Klan shit. That's what the Ku Klux Klan dance to. I said, but, but we're going to modernize it. Nah, and they said, no, we can't rap that. So I said, look, I'll show you. We can rap it, we can rap it. And I, I said, Gary, 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 I'll go, let me go, I'll, I'll go and do it. So I went into the studio and I rapped it. First, Buffalo Gal, go around the outside, round the outside, you know, I kind of rapped it. And I, I was looked back in the control room, I couldn't see them. I thought, oh God, they've gone. They're so pissed off with me, they've gone. So I stopped and I went in the control room and they were both on the floor, crying with laughter. <laughs> they were laughing so hard. And they were like, put their arms up, Trevor, man, don't be a rapper. Man, you're shit. I said, is that shit good or shit bad? Bad. <laughs> but I bad said, meaning good. Meaning is bad good? Yeah, anyway. <laughs> anyway, we, it sort of broke the ice a bit with, with them and, and they got much more friendly after that because up to then they hadn't been sure. Um, and actually, when Malcolm rapped Buffalo Girls, I had to stand next to him, punch him on the chest in time with the track. Because he'd just go, you know, the track would play and he'd just go, first, Buffalo Girl, go around the outside. Then, no, Malcolm, Malcolm. It's 
boom, 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 first buffalo, girl, go round the outside, round the outside. And he's right, uh, uh, okay, I get it, I get it. And so standing there doing this, after about four takes, I started to get tired and I stopped doing it and off he went. And he said, you've got to keep hitting me. Come on, what's your problem? And I said, I'm exhausted, Malcolm, come on. Buffalo guys, that's how, we got, that's how we got the vote. But the record itself, the track, took ages to do because he was trying to do, we kept trying to do something much more ambitious. And I had Ann Dudley, you know, the keyboard player, Ranger. She was doing the music and, and um, JJ, who was in the Art of Noise, was doing the Fairlight. And in the end, I had, you know, we, we spent days trying to, trying, you know, days, probably, probably two weeks, trying to get something out of Malcolm, the world's famous Supreme Team, and Dudley and JJ, that would be any, that would, that would be good. And there's some hilarious outtakes that I've got somewhere where you can hear the world's famous Supreme Team saying to Malcolm, man, Malcolm, you're a vibe killer. You kill the vibe, man, like nobody. <laughs> And in the end, I had to say to him, Malcolm, do me a favor, give me one day, just me and the guys, just one day, and I think I can crack this track. And, and we did it, me and uh, Anne Dudley and myself and Gary Langan of the World's Famous Supreme Team did it in a day, we, we recorded it in a day, Malcolm did the vocal. And I always remember when the World's Famous Supreme Team were leaving England to go back to, to New York, they phoned me up and they said, Trevor, Trevor, we got to record that song again. I said, why? He said, be, be, because the scratching's whack. And I said, does that mean, is that bad? I don't get you. You mean it's not right? It's whack. And I said, oh, oh don't worry about that. It's, it's, it's a punk record. It'll be fine. It's all right. And he said, oh, okay. Then can we have the drum machine? And I said, well, no. It cost me 2,000 quid. I can't just give you that. And he said, okay, bye. They were gone, and I never heard from them again. <laughs> Is that enough about that? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of amazing to see that all this effort went into something that really sounds like someone coming back from New York with like a tape recording on a cassette and just chucking that into whatever sort of device and cutting it up. Yeah, but you couldn't chuck anything into anything. <laughs> back then, there was nothing to chuck it into. But how about yeah. like, I mean, didn't you just say you had like a massive fail light? Well, the, the, I had a Fairlight, but the Fairlight only had eight seconds of sampling time. Come on, it's only a bit of work. And you could, only, you could only put in bits that were half a second long. So, yeah, it, well, it has a certain, you know, the, there's a certain structure to it. But it was actually a hit, you know, they played it on the radio and it was a hit. And just as a sort of postscript to it, I was always a little bit nervous because at the end of it, I had the girls saying, too much of that Snow White. At the end, and I thought, should I have left that on there? I could get in trouble for that because it's a reference to cocaine, obviously. Um, and uh, one day, the f somebody came and said, the controller of the BBC is on the phone and wants to speak to you. And you know, my heart started to go like this. I thought, Jesus, they've, they've sussed out that fucking Snow White thing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I picked up the phone and he said, we're gonna give you a special DJ's award. Like, God for that. <laughs> So, you know, it, it, caused, it caused quite a stir. But one thing that I did do with it that, that, that was interesting was a lot of the stuff that I'd recorded in South Africa, <coughs> because I, I was obviously aware of copyright even then, I cut onto vinyl. And so all that, oh, she's looking like a hobo, is the Zulu people from, uh, 
from South Africa. And in fact, that, that little noise at the front, the Malaya, that the woman does at the start, that's the Zulu woman that said Malcolm couldn't sing. And that's the Zulu war cry that Zulu women make when they're killing somebody. That's what she told me anyway. Right on. So the Buffalo Girl. Um, on that note, maybe you were mentioning it earlier, too mildly happier note. Yeah. Yippee-yay-yay, yippee-yay-yay. Yeah, it's, it's funny listening to that. There's one part where Ma Martin goes, whoa, 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 or something at one point. And I remember now we made that up from a few bits of vocal because you didn't have, we didn't have sort of samplers then and we needed something for that bit. And I remember editing a half-inch, flying them off onto a piece of half-inch tape, editing the half-inch tape and then flying them back into the track. You know, flying that line, whoa, 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 or whatever it was, just to, just to get that there. David, David Bowie came in while we were, while we were working on that. He, he, the, we were working in Tony Visconti's studio and we were, we were doing The End. Because if you listen to The End, that's I sing the Be Lucky in Love, that's me singing at the end. And we were trying to figure out how to finish the song off and I said, I said, Mark, we need to do something at the end, you need to do something, maybe you need to talk or maybe you need to say something. And Tony Visconti came in and said, do you mind if David comes and sits at the back? For a minute, it's like no. I, mean, I was a huge David Bowie fan, so no, no problem at all. And uh, it was the only time I ever saw Anne Dudley put some makeup on. She ran off to the loo and came back with makeup. And I said, "Well, do you look different, Anne?" Well, David Bowie's coming in, and uh, he came in and he sat at the back for a while. And I, rem I remember being quite impressed by the fact that his eyes were two different color colors. And uh, and we were talking about what to do with the end, and he said why don't you have a, a message from a, an answering machine? Answering machines were relatively novel at that point. And we were like, mm, I don't know about that. I don't know if that's such a good... No, maybe, no, no. Martin said, no, I'm going to say something. I'm going, to, I'm going to write something. But then David Bowie went. And then he suddenly came back again. And I remember he was like, has anybody seen my bag? And we were like, no, no. Sorry, David, no. He went again, and then an assistant came in and said, has anybody seen David's bag? I think one of the guys from ABC came running in, and he was so pleased with me. He was saying, I freaked David Bowie out. I freaked David Bowie out. I've hidden his bag, and they can't find it. He's looking everywhere for it. Can you imagine? I freaked David Bowie out. He was so chuffed with himself. <laughs> but uh, they, were, they, were, they were brilliant, ABC, when I listened. I mean, the lyrics of that are really clever, you know? I mean... They were all bright guys and they were listening to American records. And so, you know, most of that, they, would, they worked out themselves. That was the second single. And by that point, you know, we had a way of working that sort of, because the first record I did with them um, was Poison Arrow. And we started, when we first worked together, you know, we spent a day in the studio and they played Poison Arrow. And they, went, they, they were okay. You know, the drummer was a guy called David Palmer who plays with Rod Stewart now. So he was a career drummer. I thought he was a pretty good drummer, but nobody else was that good. And, you know, when, we, when they played it, when, when I'd recorded it, I said to them, is this what you've got in mind? Is this what you want? And they said, why? And I said, well, do you want to work harder on it? Do you want it to sound better than this? And they were like, how good can we get it to sound? 
I said, well, you can get it to sound better than this, but you'll have to go through a process. Uh, and I, at the time, I had a, I, I, you know, I was probably one of the first producers who had a rig. And my rig consisted of an 808 with a set of triggers on the side of it and a, a mini Moog uh, and, a, and a sequencer that uh, it, it was a Roland sequencer that you just put lists of notes into it. Everything, everything worked for me eight to eight. With you know, I used to use the audio as triggers for the sequencer, and I, I also had a set of Dave Simmons synth drums that that he'd he'd made for me, and he'd modified my TR eight to eight so I could drive these synth drums. So I can, in essence, I could, uh, you know, the 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 sequencer worked with CV and gate, you know, control voltage and gate, which is why I've never liked MIDI because that used to be absolutely locked spot on. Anyway, I said, well, look, if, if, if you want to make it better, the first thing we have to do is I have to program everything that your drummer's played into the 808. And then I'll program the bass player's part, put the two, you know, in the sequencer. And then we'll record that. And then we'll start again. You play the drums over the TR-808 and try and get everything as close as possible to, you know, so it's perfectly in time. As perfectly in time as you can. They were sort of bemused by it, but they were very ambitious. And um, of course, that's exactly what we did. And it was the, 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 the you know, it took, it must have taken me eight or 10 hours because I don't know if anybody's ever programmed an 808, especially if, if, if you have to put a song in it. It's very, it's, it's very fiddly. And, uh, and of course, we weren't singing it to tape. So, so, you know, when it was all done, you just press the go button and off it went. And, um, and so they played on top of it, and the bass player played on top of it. And of course, we got a much tighter track. And, and that sort of opened their eyes a little bit. And by the time we came to Look of Love, they had it all worked out, you know, and they wanted me to put the bass part into the sequencer, and we started it in exactly the same way. That's the only thing you could do back then. I mean, you couldn't really... It, it was early days of locking stuff to tape. On the content level, I mean, you got like a almost a four-hour soul disco opera in this track, in in the way the drama builds and the arrangement and all of that. Yeah. And then you always got these tiny little asides where this other voice is counteracting with like, "What's that?" and "Who's got yeah. the look?" and all that who's kind got of stuff. Look, yeah. And who came up with that concept? Oh, that was them. They were very bright guys, you know. It was it was a bit like you give them one thing and they'd they'd run with it. They came they came up with uh, they wrote the song. I think my main contribution was be lucky in love at the end, and suggesting that he talk. I mean, aside, aside from you know recording it and mixing it, and, and Dudley did the strings. That was the first time we did real strings on one of their records, and it it was Anne Dudley's first ever string arrangement. It was the first time I'd used strings for for you know for a long time as well because before I had a hit I had a very bad experience with the string section who literally walked out in the middle of a, a take as the minute hand went through one o'clock they all they were in the middle of a take they put down their instruments and walked out and I was so upset because it cost money I remember I threw the check on the floor in front of the the, the, the fixer and put my foot on it and walked off and I said I'm never using real strings again I'm never working with those kind of musicians ever You know, but we all say those kind of things, and you know, when it came to when it came to this, I got, it was Anne's first arrangement, and uh, it was a big thing for her. But she was good, you know. Anne was, I, I was lucky on that record. I had a great keyboard player 
great engineer. You know, the engineering on that still, you know, is really good. So, what was the question? I've forgotten. <laughs> um, was, oh, it, was it their idea? It was their idea. The, the whole record was their idea. They wanted to make, they went to a club. When they were at university, they used to go to a club and dance. And they used to listen to American records and they loved American records. They wanted to make their own version of an American soul record that had more content to it. And so really I was like, I facilitated it. Was Paul Molly involved in any way at that stage already? <laughs> no, Paul, Paul Morley was uh, the journalist for the NME. No, uh, no what happened? Paul Morley, I, I, I became friendly. Paul Morley interviewed me when I was a boggle, you know? And I was doing lots of interviews, and I was pretty inexperienced. And I thought that people who interviewed you were, were your friend. And I had a pretty rude awakening. And for a while, I, I was actually, I was saying, if, Paul, if I ever see that Paul Morley again, I'm going to deck him, right? Tell him. And uh, <laughs> so I was pretty angry with him, because he wrote some nasty thing about me, which was kind of true. So I didn't, you know, I mean, And which was? Dirty old men with modern mannerisms. That's what he called the Buggles. And we were dirty old men. We were, I was 30. I wasn't 17, you know. I, I wasn't... Uh, and I did have modern mannerisms because I'd been listening to, uh, to Kraftwerk. But then I, I, I produced this group called Dollar. Give a few tracks, Give Me Back My Heart, Mirror, Mirror, Handheld, and Black and White. They were all big hits in England. I don't think they did anything over here. But suddenly, the NME was writing nice things about me. I was, I, I was kind of astonished. Because I didn't think the enemy would like an act like Dollar, because they were kind of a little pop act, kind of like a modern act in a way. Like they could, although compared compared to some modern acts, you mean they were like Pavarotti and whatever, because because it was no auto tune, so they really had to be able to sing then. And it was Dollar that got me ABC because ABC were very trendy, and Paul Morley loved a ABC, and so he write, wrote even more nice things about me. And then so the next time I. I met him, <laughs> I didn't punch him. Um, but I got him to come and start ZTT for me because I just had, you know, Island Records wanted me to start a record label. Um, before we get to that episode in a second, there was another track in between that might be worth talking about. <laughs> I mean, the crazy thing when you listen to this now, especially when you kind of grew up with that kind of stuff on pop radio, is the amount of things that apparently don't really connect from like a very obvious point. I mean, you got an incredibly manly guitar riff there, and then you got this kind of disco-ish beat, and, yeah. and a couple of like tape samples, I presume? Well, uh, no, that was, uh, by that point, we, we, we had a synclavier. And there's um, a lot of synclavier. Which was what, what probably? This was, oh, which year was this? Oh, I know exactly. We started that album in 19, late 1982 and finished it autumn of 1983. And we, we, we had this track for a long time, but it had a different song over it. And the song, as it originally was, was so awful that I was convinced, well, the verses of it were so awful that I was convinced that if we didn't put loads of whiz-bangs and gags all over the verse, no one would ever listen to it. I thought, because I always thought it was a hit chorus, you know. Um, but when I first heard that song, the verse went, I, I mean, 
give you some perspective, Trevor Rabin, who was a South African uh, pop star, had joined Yes. He was a sort of brilliant guitar player and keyboard player. Uh, but he, as a songwriter, he tended to go towards American kind of rock stuff. Like, um, be, because when they wanted me to produce them, um, because you know, I'd been in the band as a singer, I replaced John Anderson for one year in 1980, which was an a incredible experience, never to be repeated. Um, because John Anderson sings so high, and I can sing high, but I can't sing as high as John Anderson, and not for as long. So I, I, I knew the band really well, and in 1983, I'd just done Malcolm McLaren, I was really hot as a producer, and my wife was furious with me for wanting to do yes. You know, it's like, yes, I've finished, they're old farts, you know. And who's interested in yes? But I, but I, I, I always loved the bass player, you know, I was a bass player and, and Chris Squire to me is the only bass player who ever got away with, with, with playing melodic parts on loads of songs, you know. I don't think anyone's even come close to him. I wanted to do it, you know, I just wanted to do it, but I wasn't sure about the songs and I went to Trevor Rabin's to, to hear the songs for the album and he played me three or four and they were all the same kind. I remember one of them, moving in, bom, bom, I'm moving my love into you, that kind of love kind of thing. And I've always been a bit allergic to love. Uh, it's never been my thing, you know? And I, I was getting a bit, God, this is gonna be a bit of a drag. How, what am I gonna do about this? What a yes going to sound like playing that. And Trevor Rabin went to the loo and he left a tape machine going. And this song came on. And, and the demo of it had that intro where it had a very, power, very powerful intro that did that sort of snap jump cut straight to dong, boom, 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 with the drums right up in your face. I think his intro didn't have drums on it, just had guitar. And I thought, wow, that's a good gag. I like that gag. That's a really, and I like the riff. Good tempo, oh, it's a good riff. And then the song came in, the song was, you don't wanna go dancing, you won't even answer the phone. You're so scared of romancing, everything you do is alone. You know, it was that kind of thing. Try, it's hard to please, you give you all the loving I know. I hated the verse, then it went, owner of a lonely heart. I thought, that's good, with dee 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 dee. And I said to him, as he came out the toilet, I said, this is a hit song, that's a hit chorus. He said, oh, no, this song's not for Yes, I wrote it for somebody else. I said, no, Yes could do this song, it's a hit song. No, oh, I don't know about that. Anyway, we, 90125, uh, we recorded all of the tracks apart from this one, and they didn't want to do it. And I, and, and I had to beg them. And you know, when you've been a singer in a band, you can kind of be, you can kind of be funny with them, you know? And I was literally in the townhouse, I was crawling around on the, on the ground, pulling at people's trousers, saying, please, please, have a go at this song. I, we need a single. You know, I'm a hot producer at the moment. If I don't get a single, I'll be fucked, you know, please. And, and Chris was like, mm, all right, and we'll give it a go. And we spent days with them trying to play it. And they kept... You know, they, you know, it would, the intro was fine, but once the track, once the thing started, they kept wanting to change the riff, you know, it's like, can't we just play it straight and simple? Boom. Anyway, 
we've got to program it. We've got to program it. And they were very against it because they'd never programmed anything in their whole careers. And the drummer was really anti it. But I prevailed, and, and myself and Chris Squire programmed the drum machine, you know, for, 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 the, for the initial track. And Trevor Rabin's big friend was a guy called Mutt Langer. And now, if you don't know Mutt Langer, Mutt Langer is probably the biggest record producer that's ever been. He's the guy that produced Def Leppard, Shania Twain, you know, The Cars, The Boomtown Rats, ACDC. And he's a kind of, the very you know, he's a rock producer and he is what you would imagine, what I think is what some people have imagined that I'm like. He's like Dracodian, right? He'll have a fist fight with the band if he can't get his own way. He's a tough guy. And Trevor had this idea that the, the, the drums on this should be big, like an American, you know, like a big snare drum. And he kept trying to interfere in the engineering side of it and try, kept trying to make the drums sound like that and driving me and Gary nuts. So when we came to do the drums, I said to Gary, all this shit with the drum, snare drum tuned down is crap. It sounds dreadful. And it doesn't suit Alan. And I'd just been listening to Synchronicity so Stuart Copeland, that's the sound. It's tune Alan's snare drum. What key are we in? A. Tune up to a high A. So we tuned his snare drum to a high A. And it, so, so that sound. And I loved it, you know. But I remember, you know, I was working in Sam East and it was a tiny control room. And in order to get to the toilet, you had to walk through the reception. As I was walking through the reception, the whole Yes crew was there. And I heard the chief roadie saying, fucking drums sound like a fucking pee on a barrel I don't know what Trevor was up to and then he saw me he said oh sorry Trev <laughs> I said fuck off no no uh, they're staying like that and even till up till you know Ahmed Erdogan the guy that ran Atlantic heard the backing track because because all of those little doodles you know bam were originally on the demo but they were played on a mini moog and I had a, I had the Fairlight, and I had that Malcolm McLaren tape, and I took, I took that in and said, can't we use some, of, can't we use some of this instead of playing those things on a mini moog? Let's play them on crazy sounds, and uh, it worked really well. I mean, it, it worked incredibly, but uh, and and it took me, I think, from January of 1983 till probably July to persuade Trevor to rewrite the song. And in the end, he and I stayed up all night. We, we rewrote it about four or five times, and then at about three o'clock in the morning, I turned into John Anderson for a minute and said, I'm John Anderson, and I'm not singing that. I want to sing something different. And I started to sing, move yourself, you know, that bit, for which I got 15% of the song. I wrote the verses. John Anderson didn't like it at all. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he, I said to him, don't you, you know, it's, it's an improvement on the other tune. And he said, well, it's not exactly sending the clowns anyway. He was a bit rude about it. And he, he said that he wouldn't sing my lyrics on the second verse because he didn't like them. So he rewrote it and did the eagle in the sky, white eagle in the sky. And so me and Gary decided we'd shoot the eagle. So if you listen, there's a gun blast on the record. And it's us shooting the eagle, white eagle in the sky. But Ahmed Ertigan loved, loved, the, loved the song. Trevor Raven kept trying to remix it with a big snare drum going doof and Armand Erdogan stopped it and made them put out our mix of it. Would this be a good example to tell folks about um, negotiation techniques in getting points on a record? Negotiating, 
<coughs> points on the record. Well, points on the record, my manager would have sorted out beforehand. Um, but writing, yeah, yeah. Yes, we're always very fair with the writing thing. And I've always been very... I've always tried to be really fair with writing. I mean, I, d I did four Seal albums and I you wouldn't see my name credited on any of the songs as a writer. Um, even though I contributed a lot to some of the songs, mainly arrangement. If, if I actually write something, like I wrote the verse tune and the lyrics for that, I would want something for that. But if you're working with decent people, um, it shouldn't be a problem. I'm just always straight up about it. it. What can be awful sometimes, and I felt it once or twice in my life, is where somebody doesn't want you to write something because they don't want you to have any of the publishing. And a couple of times when I found myself in that position, I've generally left because I don't want to be caught like that. I don't want to feel uncomfortable. And the thing is, you know, I tear people's songs apart and rebuild them. And people are fine with it, just as long as you don't try and get some of it, some of the, the writing. But if you do write some of it, you really do write some of it, not just suggest something or come up with a word. I came up with two words for Robbie Williams' track last year, and I said, you can have the words. Just two words and one bit of it, you know. It's better to be upfront about those kind of things. If, if artists think that you're... I remember Dave Gilmore telling me about, you know, the guitar player Pink Floyd telling me about how edgy he got with his producer because he kept thinking he was trying to get some publishing, you know? And he would be pushing it away all the time. So negotiating techniques for points. How would it work? Would you, like, would your manager negotiate a certain rate before you go into the record and go like, okay, I get a set fee or I get like five points on this? Or Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Back then, you, uh, back then I would, uh, I would probably have got four points on that Yes record because that's, that was my going rate. Um, and I was always much more interested in the points than in the advance. The film, if you're in the film business, always make sure you get a big advance because there's not much on the back end of it. But in records, there used to be a lot on the back end, you know? But I wouldn't necessarily negotiate that. My wife used to negotiate it. But to give you an idea of how that would go sometimes, in about probably 1986, 87, I got a call from Sting. And he, he invited me over to his house up in Highgate. I went to see him for lunch. And he said, uh, we want to do a Greatest Hits album. And we, police, and we want to, renegotiate uh, all our greatest hits. We want to we you know, re-record them. And uh, the only person that we can agree on is you to do it. I was like, oh, well, I'm really flattered. But I said, but do you really want to re-record Roxanne? I mean, and, and don't, I mean, my favorite police song was Don't Stand So Close To Me. You know, and I thought Nigel Gray's production, and it was brilliant. I thought Nigel Gray was one of the unsung hero producers because I never heard anybody get a better sound than Nigel Gray, better guitar sound. Anyway, Sting said, no, 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 no. We definitely want to re-record them because I can sing so much better now. So, right, okay. Well, I mean, it's a bit of a big one to turn down. So I said, okay. He said, have you got a good manager? because mine's an animal. I remember he used those exact words. And I said, well, 
I'm married to my manager. <laughs> she can be an animal sometimes. But uh, <laughs> don't worry about me. I'll be fine. Um, Sting's manager at the time was Miles Copeland. Uh, the negotiation between my wife and Miles Copeland lasted for, I think it was 32 seconds. It went like this. Hi, hi. Right. Miles Copeland said, we never pay royalties. My wife said, we never work without getting royalties. He said, well, we never pay them. So Jill said, okay, then give me a million pounds for it. He said, no. That was it, clonk, gone. He ended it. <laughs> but I mean, I said to her, look, I really don't want to do this. I don't want to do it because I think it's one of those kind of stupid ideas that will end up nowhere. Because once they start playing it, they'll realize, so what, play it again, who cares? Who wants to hear a re-recording of Roxanne? I don't, you know? So that's negotiating points. <laughs> um, using that song as another example, when you listen to it, it's almost like you have a DJ, like an old school hip hop DJ playing two tracks at once. And once the riff has come in, it's like over to the rhythm track. Like, how would you have to picture this in a studio at the time? Like, how many people would be operating the board and stuff? Yeah, well, it was a 40-channel SSL. And what we, what, we, what we did, when we were doing those kind of... I used to call those whiz-bangs, the whiz-bangs, you know, that go, go across it. Um, we had a very crude backing... We had a very simple backing track. And, for instance, we did the, the guitars at the front... We would do those guitars, the heavy guitars, and then we would cut the tape, cut the two inch, leader it up both sides, and erase so, so that the guitar, so that everything stopped dead on the downbeat. You know, if 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 you put up the multi track for that song, you'll find it's pretty pretty like the record, because I I learned very early on that leaving things till the till the mix was a really bad thing. Because in the mix, you never know where your head's going to be at. You're worn out with the track. It's much better to to have every effect, particularly th this is pre-computer. Although I think we had the computer by the time we did, we mixed that one. But I still never lost the habit to have every effect already recorded, you know. And so if you if you if you put the multi-track up, you get that record. You wouldn't have to do anything with it. You know, just have to balance it up. Uh, so seeing you know, we. I mean, I could talk all afternoon about what you had to do when you were recording analog. It was a completely different thing. Because, because with analog, it was uh, noise, you know. I mean, nowadays, you can do a vocal, and if you're not a very good engineer, you can record the vocal. So it's like when you see it in Pro Tools, it's like this, you know, like a line like this. And then if, because it's not recorded properly, you can jack it up 20 dBs. If you jacked up something that you'd done on tape 20 dBs, it would sound dreadful. It would, either hiss would be as loud as the vocal. So you were constantly, everything that went to, that's why, in a way, the engineer was so important. Gary Langan, who engineered that, was a brilliant engineer. He would, his hand would never be off the fader. Somebody was singing, he was following, he'd, he'd have the lyric sheet. Where they were singing quietly, he'd be cranking it up, pulling it back, pushing it, all the time, everything. And everything that you recorded was like that. There was all sorts of tricks that you, that, that you did. If you wanted to fly something in, you had to put it on a piece of half-inch tape and put chalk marks and press start, you know. And it would take you five or ten minutes, and eventually you would start it at the right point, and 
you'd fly things in like that. There was all kinds of stuff that we did. Does that help at all? <laughs> I guess it will be a little bit more haptical if we head over to the studio a little later, but maybe to move on in the you timeline. You've got an analog machine, have you? The things, the things we can find in time. Something else that might be worth playing. Uh, Relax came about be really because somebody, somebody brought out a box called a conductor, and it was the it was I had one of the first ones, and you could lock you could lock page R on a Fairlight. Page R was a sequencer page that had eight tracks. You could lock page R to a Lin drum machine, and that was at the time that was pretty big stuff because there was no way really that you could sequence samples other than a Fairlight on this eight channel sequence sequencer, and. I, I was having a problem, you know. I mean, I've talked about this record. People ask me about it a lot because I, this was the fourth version of this song. Because the band, when it, when we signed the band, their the guitar, they, they never told me, like bands never tell you shit, right? They never told me that the that the guitar player that they had in the band couldn't couldn't play. That, that the guy that had played on the demos had left to go into plumbing. That was a wise choice. And and so the band couldn't play, and it was like one of those things. You said it, you know. It always makes me laugh when I hear people go, "Just simply recording." Yeah, I just set the microphones up, and they played it, and there it was. And I didn't interfere with it. God knows what would have happened if it, if I had, if I'd have done that with this. They, it sounded terrible when they played it. They couldn't play it in time. The bass player and the drummer were good, and the singer was brilliant, and the track was great. But it was an unusual track. It didn't really have a sort of. It was like a jingle, and. It was obviously about sex, um, and it was the, uh, also at the time where, where you know, I don't know, it was a big, it was a big gay thing on the go because it had been legalized. You could be gay legally. Uh, I think before that you couldn't be. So there was a whole new kind of feeling in the air, and and the Frankies, three of them were straight and two of them were gay, and but. But they all got on really well, and, and they were funny. They were all from Liverpool. They were kind of like, I imagine the Beatles must have seemed. They were, they were funny and charming. And, and I, thought, I thought Holly's voice and the track was, was, was really good, you know? And, but I just didn't know how to make the record out of it, and we tried. I tried with the band. I tried with the Ian Jury's band, the Blockheads. I tried getting them to play it. And, and the bass player in the Blockheads, Norman Watroy, who play, you know, the bass part for Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick, I think is one of the all-time great bass parts, came up with bam, bam, bam. And I remember thinking, I'll keep that. That's a good idea. And, and I was messing around. I, I was messing around with a Lin 2. I had a Lin 2 and I had some pet patterns and that sort of, that sort of hoedown pattern. Dig, 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 dig. It was a pattern that I had. And, uh, and it was just one Tuesday afternoon. Um, I I sort of went over the limit a little bit, got a bit crazy um, due to something that somebody gave me, and uh, and I suddenly saw the light. I realised that we'd been wasting our time and we had to start again. And I tried to get the guys to wipe the tape. Even I said, "We've got to wipe it. It's I never want to hear hear this version again." Anyway. It, you know, I, I, I threw a bit of a wobbler and I got under the desk and I was being silly and saying, I've been defeated, I can't do this track, all that kind of stuff. And then I said, let's have one more go. And uh, 
And it was a great day. It was like one of those days where the, when you feel boating, the wind's behind you. And the first idea was, why don't we put an E minor chord behind it and see what it sounds like with an E minor chord? You know, because before that it had been sort of in R and B key, you know, which is like E, whatever. Um, putting it in a minor key suddenly gave it a sense of drama and made it sound more European in a good way, a way that I particularly liked. And we started to work on this arrangement. And my engineer at the time, who I didn't know very well, started playing guitar, a guy called Steve Lipson, who's a big producer now. He was playing guitar, and that guy called Andy Richards on the keyboards. And, and I'd had this one thing that I had this eight piano, ding, 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 with a four on the floor drum machine. And I knew, I had, I knew there was something in that. And the way that this conductor thing worked, the sequencer, the Fairlight sequencer, went round all the time playing exactly the same thing, which was eights on a piano and fours on a bass playing, playing uh, four E's, about, you know, boom, 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 boom. Uh, but I could change the pattern on the lin, on the fly. And the, the, the effect of going from the four on the floor, I mean, I think we've got it on here, Tim. Because I brought the multi-track of it, um, the uh, the effect of changing from one beat to another was like obviously really good, you know. When you get something, that's great. That that works. So four or five of us in the control room, nobody from Frankie, unfortunately, spent the next sort of four or five hours working up this quite complex arrangement of the tune, which you know I would be singing the song and changing the patterns on the drum machine and boogieing around, and Steve was playing, Andy Richards was playing keyboards, and JJ was doing silly things on the Fairlight, you know, all the funny noises. And uh, we worked up, you know, we, we, we worked up the arrangement, and at about sort of nine o'clock at night, we recorded it. And, you know, because it, it, it wasn't the era of locking anything to tape, we couldn't sort of put something down and then lock the sequencer to it. You set the sequencer going, and I changed the lin on the fly. You know, you just had to give it. You know, it would you 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 punch the numbers in. It would play in two bar loops, and we did it first take, and it is the first take. And the second thing we did after we recorded the backing track for the single, we did a fourteen minute version of it that we called the sex mix. Um, but <laughs> but here it is. If if you just listen to the way that. That change in itself was was very exciting. I mean, uh, it never occurred. Funny enough, it never occurred to me that it was a dance record. I know that sounds absurd now, but I wasn't thinking about a dance record. I was thinking about at the front, you know, where where it started. I imagined that uh, armies of people stretching out to the horizon, waiting to have sex. <laughs> And Holly being the sort of uh, standing like on, on, on the top of a tower and a minaret, like a minaret with minarets, calling the faithful to come and fuck, basically. Um, well, it's, it's basically the reaction that the, the Thatcher government had towards the track as well, right? Yes. <laughs> oh, people got very angry about it. But I, I thought all of this was in my head, right? And that, that we would be okay. Um, anyway... I remember the singers arrived because the band were up in Liverpool and Holly and Paul, who were the two singers, arrived at the studio at about 11 o'clock that night. And I told the reception, when Holly gets here, to keep them down there. Don't let them come up to the studio. 
And <laughs> anyway, they phoned me at 11 o'clock and said, Holly and Paul are here. So I went downstairs and, uh, and they, of course, they said, how's it going? And I said, well, it, it, it's changed a bit. And they said, changed? How much has it changed? I said, well, it's changed quite a lot, actually. He said, oh, no, you haven't started again, have you? Because you can remember this is the fourth time. I said, yeah, I've started again, sorry. And they ran, and I ran after them. They ran up to the studio. And, of course, we, we played it. And from the minute it started, they started to dance, and they loved it. And, uh, and Holly loved it. He couldn't wait to sing it. And I told him the idea about the minaret and him on the tower. So he, he got my saxophone, and there's a note at the start. I don't know if it's there. Is it, is it there in the multi-track? And he played the note on the top of the stu- on, on the roof of the studio, and somebody, one of the guys, recorded it onto a cassette player or something. <laughs> I can't help myself. I got carried away with it a bit, and you know, I started saying things like, "I want to have a huge orgasm here," you know, and that was the <laughs> that was the big orgasm in the middle. You know, he goes, "Come, come, whoosh," and all that stuff. And we just tried to get the we we kept trying to get the orgasm bigger and bigger, and. I remember going home that, that day, that, that night at about sort of five o'clock in the morning, and my wife, I, one of my children had just been born because it was a long time ago, and I said to her, I think we've cracked that track now. I think we've got it. And I said, thank God for that. And, uh, and literally, we finished it within a couple of days. The interesting thing was, when it was first released, it got really bad reviews from a couple of the music papers, he said really horrible things about here another disco record, another crappy disco record, and I, I was a bit, uh, you know, I can't. It, it sort of was out for about four weeks and didn't do anything, and then I was in uh, I was in America working with Foreigner. I mean, not many people know it, but I did most of the backing tracks for Foreigner Five, their their fifth album. You know, I want to know what love is and all those things, but then the, then I couldn't go on because we didn't get on, so I walked out. But I was there working with them when the video, the first video for this arrived. And you can imagine, these are all old rock and roll guys. And, and I tried to sort of play it down. Could you about, describe the video maybe a little bit? It was the pissing video, you know, where, where they're all pissing on each other and stuff. And uh, it's, uh, they were all saying, what's that? What's that video you got? And I was going, oh, no, nothing, nothing, nothing. And they were going, come on, come on, let's see it. I said, Okay played it and they were like that's disgusting it's a fucking awful track as well and i could see them looking at me thinking god is this our producer you know and i remember the the leader of foreigners saying to me um i don't know how good that is you know relax and i was pretty down on it i didn't think it you know i thought well well there you go i worked hard on it but you know obviously it's not going to do anything particularly Chris Blackwell took me out to, I was in New York, Chris Blackwell took me out to a place called Paradise Garage, uh, which really, as they say, blew my mind, because it was a dance club, but it had a rock and roll PA. And it was the first time I ever saw people bombing the bass, you know, and doing crazy stuff with records. And uh, I was so impressed with the sound there. And when we came out, it was a, I remember it was a Thursday night, I said to Chris, I want to do another mix of Relax. Now that I've been there, I know exactly how to do it. 
um, you can get me in a studio. And he got me in the hit factory. And I did that 12-inch that you were playing there. I did it on a Saturday. Was Andy Richards was over in, in, in New York. And I got him to play, you know, all those keyboards at the start. He played those live as we, as we printed it. I did it in half-inch edits. And the engineer that was engineering it was a rock and roll engineer. And he hated the track. I could tell he hated the track. He hated the whole thing. And, you know, I keep doing a bit and go, yeah, done, okay, edit that on. Now we're going to do this. Now we're going to do a double, triple drop where we drop it some, then we drop it some, and then we completely drop it, and then we drop it even more. And uh, he went to the toilet, and the assistant, who was like a 17-year-old kid, as soon as he went out of the room, said, this is great, it's great, don't listen to him, I love it, it's great, you know. That sort of kept me going, because I was getting a bit miserable. I mean, there was a lot of misery about Relax. And then, you know, what changed it was the band went on top of the pops, and from the second the band stood up and mimed to that track, it went mad. It went absolutely mad, and we just sold millions of records. We had a year where... It was just unbelievable. I kept trying to get the records right. I kept trying to get the 12 inches right. And so consequently, there would be two or three different versions of the 12 inch and people were buying all the versions. It was really the start of that whole 12 inch thing being big in the 80s because the record label suddenly saw you could make a load of money from it. Okay, because I mean, there's other sides of that story where people are just going like, oh, well, they just remixed it and remixed it and remixed it to make sure it went to number one and like... And then up until the point till the British uh, recording industry authorities um, only allowed like two or three remixes of a record? Yeah, 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 yeah they stopped it. They stopped me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean the, the last... In the end, I, I refused to do another mix of it. I was so sick of it. Uh, but I was enjoying doing 12 inches for a while, you know. And when we, do, we, we were doing Two Tribes, whilst that was still number one, And I was terrified with two tribes. It took me a long time with two tribes to be confident enough to let it go. And uh, and the, the the first 12 inch of two tribes, the one that has all that stuff about if your grandmother or anybody else should die whilst in the shelter, um, which is which, a pretty grim theme. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, but it's, I still think yeah. yeah, it's a great 12 inch. I think it's one of the best ones we ever did. Because I used to approach the 12 inches like it was a yes track. Yeah. You know, like it was an arrangement of something that was, instead of being three minutes long, it was eight minutes long. and But it always had an arrangement, you know? It would build to a climax and break down. But it was a fun, it was a fun time for 12 inches. 12 inches were fun then for a while. But then I, I, after a couple of years, I just got so sick of it. Let's just quickly see whether that was the right version we got there now that we're talking about it. Listening to that, you know, it just reminds me of how much trouble I used to get. People got very angry about some of that. I just <coughs> got angry about it. I don't know why. In what did. respects? Just angry. I mean, everyone knows Relax was banned because of Paul Morley. Paul Morley did did some funny things, you know. I mean, there's there's some talking on that. And I think there's it's on that in another track called War. And I said to Paul, some of that sort of speech that we got the actor to do is a bit weird. Where's it from? And he said, Mein Kampf. Oh, I don't know about that. I wish you'd told me. But it, it, the whole thing was kind of, uh, it was a bit like that, you know, the guy that did all the talking. We discovered pretty early on that there was a tape that all local radio stations had. It was actually a, a disc. 
and every radio station had this disc. And if there was a, um, a nuclear air raid, they had to play it. And it was a disc that they would, they would get a call from the government and everyone would have to play this disc. And this guy, Patrick, whatever his name was, had done the voiceover. And, and uh, it was, you know, it was all about when the air attack warning sounds, go, go to the shelter, the whole bit. And we, we got this bootleg copy from CND, you know, the, the anti-atomic weapon people. They'd given us a, a copy of it. You weren't meant to have it. It was meant to be on, it was on the secret list. Rather than just, <coughs> just use the track, I wanted to, I didn't want to get into trouble. I wanted to pay the guy who who'd done the original voice. So we hired him, you know, he was a voiceover guy. When he came in and I gave him the script that he had to do, it was a thousand pounds, he was a, a well-known person. When I gave him the script, he looked at it and he said, oh, where did you get this from? You're not meant to know about this. And I said, well, we got it from C&D. And he said, I don't know if I can do it. If I do this, I could be in trouble. And he said, oh, what the hell, I'm gonna do it anyway. So, <laughs> So he did it. He said all the, we'd written it all out for him to say, and, and he said it. And at the end of it, he said, uh, he said, you know, there's one bit you haven't got, you missed. And then he said, what was it? It was, if your grandmother or anyone else should die whilst in the shelter, put the body outside. And then he came, now was it, if your grandmother, he said about four or five times, I thought, God, that's dynamite. I love that. And I had it on a reel-to-reel, -reel, you know, a piece of quarter-inch tape. And while we were doing the 12-inch, because we used to get pretty carried away doing the 12-inches, the only way we could do them, we'd sort of have them blasting out loud, we'd be jumping around. We even had a smoke machine at one point for a while. <laughs> to get you in the mood, you know, you need to be in the mood, otherwise it's a bit of a cold process. You know, studios are pretty dreadful places when there's no vibe in them. So we had the sort of big vibe on the go, and I had the, I had the quarter-inch tape. And we got to one bit, and I just kept playing it and rewinding it and playing that bit over and over again because I thought it's so, it, it's so macabre, you know. Um, but we never got into trouble. Nobody said anything. I was kind of disappointed. I thought we might get arrested or something. We'd been banned for relax, you know. The guy, the guy banned it very publicly on the radio, and uh, he banned it when it was number two. And of course, we were all very upset because we thought. We thought it was going to destroy any chance it would have of getting to number one. But I mean, it was from the moment it was banned, the sales went through the roof. So we never looked back. I mean, it was a relatively popular thing at the time with pop bands, but bizarrely, everyone was. There was a lot of cerebral pop out, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if you summed this up, it would be like amyl nitrate infested gay sex meets nuclear holocaust paranoia. <laughs> That kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. And, a bit like and the graphics were borrowing from like futurism, fascism, basically everything at the same time and just turning it into like, how can we get it as controversial as possible? That was Paul. Paul Morley was pretty into that. I, I remember I only took Amel Night, Amel Night Rate once and uh, it's one of the few times in my life where I've danced. We, we all, we, we, poppers they were called, weren't they? And we were boogieing on the sofa, boogieing everywhere. And then, boy, then, then this awful smell. What's that smell? And I realized, me, God, I stink. I'm so, I never took it again after that. So we weren't, we weren't, but when I listen back to it, it sounds a bit like that, doesn't it? We could go on for hours there, but there's that another one's... track 
that we can't leave the house without. Well, when I first played that to my wife in the car, she said, that's really boring. And I said, it's meant to be boring. Some people like boring stuff, so we've done something boring for people who like boring stuff. It's maybe for, you know, to have sex to or something like that, so you can just leave it going in the background. <coughs> it was long. It's eight minutes long. And it, it's one of those funny, one of those things that we, when we did it, it was uh, an idea of Paul Morley's Moments in Love. And Anne came up with this sort of, the riff. Um, but initially, uh, she, when we recorded it, we used like drum samples or something. And I remember saying, why don't we try and use all the wrong sounds on this and see what it sounds like, you know? Let's use a, an orchestral snare, a double bass, and you know, just the wrong sounds. And, and it's sort of, it worked with all the wrong sounds for some reason. And there's a bit of there's a bit of an old John Lee Hooker record in the middle. Now, 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 from now, when I was, you know, from one of those kind of things. Did you clear that? Yeah, uh, yeah. Post we cleared it, but at the time we didn't clear it because uh, at the time I just went and you know I just went to a folk record shop and said, "Have you got anything with a guy playing the guitar?" And the the the, the poor person whose shop it was was. What kind of thing do you like? And I was saying, blues. Oh, we've got some great blues. And all I wanted was a, a noise, you know? I just wanted a bit of noise. But he was so into all of the records, you know? He would have been horrified if he knew what I was going to do with it. <laughs> um, now, Out of Noise, I mean, this track and uh, Beatbox were absolute stables in a lot of different dance communities around the world, like Chicago, um, New York, Detroit, especially there was there was one afternoon when i was working on foreigner and you know when back in what was it 83 and foreigner was the kind of band where, where, where when i worked with them i i put on my best trousers and my polished my shoes and 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 stayed pretty straight because they weren't much into being playful um so i was looking very straight and i was walking through greenwich village and there were two break dancers, and they had a get, they had a boombox on the pavement, and they were break dancing to a "She's a Hobo Scratch," which was one of the Malcolm McLaren tracks. And I remember standing there in front of them and thinking, "God, if I told them that I made that record, they wouldn't <laughs> believe it." I looked so straight, you know. Well, when you were more on the straight side of being like the record producer mogul kind of guy, um, my wife was the mogul. I was never the mogul. I'm staying out of other right. people's. <laughs> um, but there's an account that you actually had a conversation with a young Derek May about um, doing some production work for you and being signed as part of a project which would include him, uh, Juan, and um, Kevin Saunderson. When would that be? be, be a little, a little later. Like when apparently you called him in to. Um, Work for Seal. That was it. That was it. Was the opening track on Seal's first album? It was a song called "The Beginning," and was it? What was the guy's name? And I, I, I don't. Uh, Derek May. Derek May. Um, thought, sorry, I've you know I'm, I'm old. I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, Seal. Seal had this thing for this track. He kept talking about 
Detroit techno. And I was like, what's Detroit techno? And he played me a couple of Detroit techno records. He said, can't we do it uh, like this? And uh, we had a Space Invaders machine. And he kept on about this guy called Derek May. I think it was Derek May. And I was walking past the Space Invaders machine and this American dude with a sort of cap, a whole R&B look on him was playing the Space Invaders machine. And I said to him, do, if you do this, you'll get a bigger score. Or whatever. And he said, oh, yeah, great, thanks, man. I said, oh, it's Trevor Horn, what's your name? And he said, Derek May. And I went, De not Derek May from Detroit? And he went, yeah. So I'm up in Studio One with some guy. I said, man, we've just been talking about you. Will you do the, <laughs> will you do the rhythm track on this Steel song? He said, yeah, sure. So that weekend he came in and he did, he did, the, uh, he did the rhythm track for in the beginning. Seal never liked it. I mean, we used it, but Seal never liked it. That's the funny thing. Well, the way he goes on with the story is that apparently you offered him and the other three to, or the other two to form like a full-on project. And Might then, have done. And then apparently there was a conversation about what they would do if they were to go on to uh, Top of the Pops. Right. And um, why well, he said, like, we had this chance of going there and we were like, oh, no, no, no. Like, why, why would we do such a thing? That's not our style. Like, we don't do that kind of stuff. And apparently you said, like, oh, hey, Kraftwerk did it. And they were like, oh, really? Like, hmm. And then, yeah, to, and apparently there was, like, a full contract negotiated or whatever. And after that, that conversation, it was dropped or whatever. That was the project was called Intellects or something. Intellects, you see, that would have that would have probably been been with. Uh, I would have. I, I might well have said the thing about uh, top of the pops, but I was only one part of a machine. You know, there was Paul Morley and my wife, and stuff was going on all the time that I never knew anything about. Um, so that might well have happened. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. There you go. So when you when you say you're part of a machine, like if you were one of the driving factors in the machine, or actually the namesake of it, like, hey, there's Trevor and the Horn team coming in and, and all that. It's like, how do you keep track of whatever is going on and um, how do you develop the trust to leave certain aspects to other people? Because you can't possibly do it all and know it all and remember it all. Certainly can't remember it all. Um, well, you, you know, I started a record label with my wife. My job was to make the music. So once I'd finished one record, I was off making another record straight away. I'm still the same and I'm gone. I'm working on the next thing. So I wouldn't know what was going on behind me sometimes. So I suppose that's the way it, that's the way it works. My wife, my wife was my manager. She, and she ran the record label too. And with Paul Morley, although they, they didn't get on very well, they were always fighting. Because Paul was very sort of crazy and left field. And my wife was very hard boiled and hard nosed and you know, business. Which is fine, you know, but it's always, you always need a sort of, an, you know, in, in any situation, <coughs> you, you should always have an uneasy truce between money and creative. If either of them gets too strong, everything goes to shit. If, if they're both pulling against each other, it always works better, you know. You can't just be stupid and do, you know, there's, I've met loads of bitter people who've made records and never seen any money from the, you know, you don't want to do that. But then again, you can't just do everything for money. Some of the things that, things that have been the most successful, well, you know, Moments in Love. I had no idea Moments in Love would turn into a kind of classic track that still sells now. I mean, 
was just being messing around, you know, trying something, seeing if we could do something that was more ambient with what we had. So you, I guess that's, you, that's what I would say about that. You should always have a tension between the two things. If creative people are completely in control and stamp all over the financial people, it never lasts long. And if it's the other way around, then creativity is stifled and you don't get hits. So you have to be in a state of conflict all the time, I think, really. That was a, that was a daft thing really doing that record I should never have done it it was one song for Grace Jones's greatest hits and I met Grace and I kind of got a bit carried away Bruce had written the song but the song was quite different to that it was it was very you know work all day as men who know it was very robotic and and I didn't like it I you know Chris Blackwell wanted me to do it but I wasn't very keen on it and I thought slave to the rhythm What's the only, what rhythm would I be prepared to be a slave to? And the only rhythm at the time I would be prepared to be a slave to was go-go beat. Go-go beats, you know, that was happening in Washington. And I really loved that stuff. So I got Chris Blackwell to get me a go-go rhythm section. So part of the rhythm section was from, from uh, Experience Unlimited, the two percussion players. And a couple of the other guys were from Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers and... and I got them in a studio in New York and I realized pretty quickly that they couldn't, that they, there was no way that they were going to be able to do an arrangement, you know, like an arrangement where things changed. They were used to just getting up and playing for an hour, just anything. So I tried to teach them the arrangement of that song. It was hopeless. Um, but there was one bit when, they, when we were setting up that where they just played a groove and they played that groove. And I thought that groove was great. And Bruce rewrote the song over it completely. He put those beautiful chords, which are, you know, he had a JX8P and it had that fifth sound, fat fifth sound on it. And those inversions of those chords that he played is lovely sound. And you play that over the go-go beat, that sounded great to me. So we made a drum loop. It was the first time I, I'd ever really done that. We did it with two Sonys, the same sort of idea as Welcome to Pleasure Dome, but we just made, we, we made the drum track up. And it was across eight tracks, like a normal recorded drum track was, except it was made up in edits. It took us two days in the hit factory to make the drum track up. And, uh, and it's not actually in time. If you, if you put it in Pro Tools and analyze it, you see that one bar's slightly longer than the other. And that caused problems playing on it. We didn't realize at the time but every time somebody came to play on it, it always took longer than you thought because you'd have to get into the way it seemed when you actually play. You don't so much hear it when you play it. You might hear it now that I've pointed it out. But when you played on it, it had the effect that it, it was hard to lock in sometimes. We took ages making, uh, making that. I mean, we went so over the budget. And, uh, but it worked, you know. I mean, it was a lovely record. When, when, you know, when Grace came to sing it, I always remember that she was three days late and she phoned me up and she said, I've just had a row, row with Dolph Lundgren, or the boyfriend, and I've set fire to all his clothes, so I won't be able to make it to the record. I will crush you. <laughs> I will crush you, yes. <laughs> so I said, oh, Grace, come on, come, come to New York, man. We've we, we got a really good track on the go. Come on and sing. So she showed up on a Sunday and... Uh, 
we played it to her and she said, boy, this is different from the other version. And I said, yeah, it's very different. And then she said, but you know what it reminds me of? It's like I've been working all day and I'm, and I'm in the fields picking and I'm sitting down on the porch and, uh, and, and whatever. <laughs> and I had Bruce, Bruce Woody, standing about a yard away from her. And the music started and Bruce would say the line, work all day. Grace, work all day as men who know. As men who know, and uh, she did it in this sort of voice that sounded like she had been working all day. And it was one of the few times Steve Lipson and I ever danced together because we were so overjoyed. We were literally jumping around in the control room, holding each other because we'd spent days on it, and I'd got into trouble. My wife had told me I was an idiot for spending so long and everything. <laughs> But, you know, when you hear the singer, because, I mean, I, when you make records, you really don't know if you've got a record until the person sings it. And, and, and nowadays, I'm draconian. I, I won't do a record with somebody who can't sing. It's too much of a pain in the neck. When I was young, I'd take it as a challenge, but now I'm too old. And uh, until, you know, you, anybody can make backing tracks. It's, well, I'm not anybody, but backing tracks are easy compared to getting the vocal and getting a hit vocal. And so we didn't know if it was going to work, you know. But the minute she opened her mouth, the first two lines, we just knew, oh, thank God, it's going to work. It's going to work. <laughs> we'll be all right, you know. <laughs> because I was worried, you know. I was really worried about it. It's still like that to, to you know, to, I just did a Seal album, the Seal's new soul album. And uh, boy, you know, the difference... Listening to Seal, you know, when we did the first Seal album, Seal was uh, like a puppy dog. He was young, and he could sing. His voice was brilliant. But I wasn't prepared for how well he could sing now, you know. 20 years on, loads of gigs. It took my breath away sometimes how good he was, you know, how, how much he'd learned in those 20 years since I first recorded him. And Grace always had loads of character, and if, you, if anybody tries singing Slave to the Rhythm, it's actually very little range in it. There's only about a fifth. Because Grace doesn't have a big range. And the only way we could get a climax out of it was by getting it to go, uh, here's Grace, at the end of it, which was an idea I had after see, seeing her on uh, a Johnny Carson show, where he went, here's Johnny, and it was, here's Grace. That gave us a climax. Anyway, here we are, 6 o'clock. We're not even out of the 80s. I mean, that's the thing. Um, probably, I'm not really sure what a crisis is the right example, but um, to anyone who wants to go out there and record vocalists, do you got like a quick free highlight tips on how to treat vocalists in the studio? Well, absolutely. For, for, for a kickoff, I was used to say, if I gave a talk on how to record a vocal, the technical part of it would last 15 seconds. Get a valve microphone and a valve preamp. You can't go wrong with a, you know, with a good valve mic and a good valve preamp. But the most important thing is for the singer to feel comfortable, relaxed, and to know in their heart that you think they're a really good singer. If you work with somebody and you let them know in any way that you don't think they're very good, you won't get a good vocal out of them. You've got to find some way of saying to them, in a, you can't be obvious, just some kind of way of making them think that you really dig their voice. You know, I mean, that's the first thing. Bullying never gets you anywhere. 
Losing your temper never gets you anywhere. Getting cross with singers for getting it wrong all the time never gets you anywhere. It's got to be nice. It's got to be fun. You've got to re... Every time a singer sings a song, you have to react straight away. The minute the tape stops, you've got to give them input. You've got to... That was great. Oh, you lost it a bit on the chorus, but the verse was great. You know, anything. You cannot leave it silent. You cannot be silent after a take. You've got to keep encouraging them. And if they start to lose it a bit, everybody, everybody's the same. They'll sing a song three or four times, or three times maybe. And then, then they'll start, then they'll just be reading the lyrics. They won't be singing the lyrics properly. So what you do is you can give them a break. Talk about the song. Talk about anything. Tell them some stupid story. Anything. Get their mind off the song for a second. And then let them come back to it. And they'll suddenly be they'll suddenly be singing the lyrics again. I, I, I try and get people, I say, who are you singing this song to? Imagine the person's there, talk to them, sing it to the person, put, to put the meaning into it. A few times I've worked with singers who've, who shall remain nameless, who insist on doing things, you know, uh, in a way, you're pulling them out here, insist on uh, doing vocals in loops, you know, loop the first line, sing the first line 10 times, loop the second line, sing the second line 10 I loathe that. I hate that. I like people to sing the song all the way through. And if they can't sing it all the way through, then they will go home and learn it and come back and sing it all the way through. Because when you sing a song all the way through, you understand the song. You understand how, how to give it dynamics. If you sing it in bits, it's not the same. It's, it's, it's dreadful. I try personally, I try no more than seven takes. If I can keep it down to seven takes, that's my ideal. And then I'll spend two days putting together the vocal from the seven takes. Um, it's a question of, I mean, I've done, I've, you know, I worked with one guy when I was doing an album for Mona Lisa Smile. The guy who, he's, he's not a bad singer either. He had a big hit with that, with that, um, song you know with a girl on the beach half naked um what was the name i can't remember anyway he he insisted on doing 50 odd takes and i remember trying to get through 50 takes of this song well in in the end i just looked at them well those 10 are crap i can tell from the way they wobble so i wouldn't even listen to them you know but in the end you don't you don't sort of uh jealous games what was it what's his name He's a good singer, Chris Isaac, that's it. He's a good singer. He's just wicked games, that was it. He was just very paranoid, you know? And I find too with American singers, especially if you're not their normal producer, and a few times, you know, I, I did, did the song for the end of Pearl Harbor with Faith Hill, Everywhere I Go There You'll Be. I mean, you know, I have to earn a living. And uh, it was a good song. And uh, it was a really good song, and Faith Hill's a really good singer. <clears throat> but she was terrified because she worked with a, a producer that she worked with all her life. And uh, until they know that you're going to get their voice sounding right, they're always paranoid. But, gen you know, on the other side of it... How do you avoid <coughs> lying? Pardon? How do you avoid lying to them? I don't avoid lying to them. I lie to them. <laughs> but only white lies. Nice lies. There's nothing wrong with lying in, in, the, right, in the right environment. <laughs> What you get? I mean, do you? We all tell lies. How do I look in this dress? Fabulous. How was that? Great. Could be a little bit better, you know. 
What I try, I have, I, okay, I have a few things I try not to say to them. I try not to say, you're out of tune, because that's so hopeless, because they're trying to sing in tune. Um, I think the main thing is that you always got to give people the feeling that it's going to work, you know? It's going to work. And, it, you know, sometimes, I mean, I, I did, a, I did a, a track with Yolanda Adams for the end of another movie, and... Uh, I remember she came and sang it about five times and she didn't find it easy. And when she heard the vocal comp, she hugged me so hard, she hurt me. She was so pleased. And one time when I did Downtown Train with Rod Stewart, he had a problem with one line in it. And when he heard the comp and I'd moved his voice a little bit in the, the machine, he picked me up and ran around the room with me. He was so pleased because, you know, and once you do that for a singer once, then, then, then there's never any doubt after that, and you're fine. You can say whatever you want and do whatever you want because you're both there for the same thing. You want to get this vocal recorded, you know. I don't have any ego. I also, I've also been lucky because I have a fairly crap voice, but I can sing. And the thing is, I can sing a song, and it's not completely non-threatening. You know, people are always going to sing it better than me, um, and that's that can be very helpful. Right, so work on your non-threatening singing voice. <laughs> yeah, from God knows, Robbie Williams, Bell and Sebastian, Texas, John Legend, Simple Minds, uh, Countless Seal albums, um, resurrecting house classics with the Pet Shop Boys. But um, jumping into the 21st century, there was also this bit here. Can you remind me again what Paul Morley wrote that upset you so much about the Buggles? Dirty old men with modern mannerisms. <laughs> uh, so re you really... Sounds a dirty old man. Yes, yeah, so, so I actually so had, to, I had to get uh, a couple of newspapers to retract things that they wrote about me after this because they implied that these girls were 13 years old and they weren't. They were 17 or 18 years old and they were very worldly girls as well. Very nice girls, very very charming girls. We had, even though they couldn't speak much English, you know, <laughs> they would always, they would. They, I think they saw me as an ally because I was always nice to them. They said, "Trevor, Trevor, cigarette, cigarette." They get me to give them a cigarette, you know. As their manager was a bit of an asshole, and, and I, I'll say that he was he was one of those. He was what I think the papers thought that I was. Um, there was a big Russian record, you know, it sold about a million copies. And it's quite similar to the record that I made, if you, if you listen to it, but quite profoundly different as it goes along. Because I think the, one that, the, the version that I did gets better as it goes along, and the Russian one kind of gets worse. You know, it doesn't go anywhere. And it was an idea, a guy called Martin Kurtzenbaum, I, you know, I, I went to a meeting with Jimmy, Jimmy Ivin, who runs uh, Interscope Records, and to see if there was anything, any work kicking around, basically. My wife sent me, said, go and see Jimmy, he used to be a producer. He always likes to see you. And uh, this guy, Martin Kurtzenbaum, as I was, he was head of marketing, as I was going out, he said, can I show you this video, these girls? And he showed me the video for They're Not Gonna Get Us. And he said, we've sold a million albums in Russia. We've never sold this many albums in Russia. And we want to do an English version of it. And uh, we'll need English lyrics. And uh, he said, we haven't got any money. I said, well, if I can write the lyrics, um, have half the song, then sure, I'll do it for whatever money you've got. And uh, 
And it was one of those things that you start, and it, boy, it was a hard job. Just listening, I had to listen to that first, the first one where you, whatever it was, evidently Russian has 32 consonants or something in it. It took me a while to get the idea for the lyric, but the lyric was about two girls who were falling in love with each other. My, my, my eldest, my second, I've got three daughters. My 21-year-old daughter is a lesbian, and a very bold lesbian. And uh, she was thrilled with this record. She felt like I just, you know, I went up so much in her estimation when I did this record. But I got a lot of grief from quite a few people who thought I was, they called me a pornographer or something in the paper. I made them retract it because I said, I didn't do the video. I didn't make them kiss. I just made the record. I'm not a pornographer. They called me a promoter of gay sex, all kinds of stuff. But I mean, you, you were kind of used to that. You had that like 20 years before already. With Frankie, yeah, but I'd forgotten about it. And this, by this point, I had four children. And I was a lot older and <laughs> I wasn't prepared for it. And the Frankie thing, I did, this was, you know, you know, when you've got daughters, the idea that some, somehow you're a bit pervy really made me angry, you know? So, so I was more concerned about this than I was about Frankie. Um, but they were, they, they, were, they, were fun, they were sweet girls. And, uh, but you don't know how difficult it is to sing in a foreign language. I mean, it really is one of the hardest things to do. And I had that opening lyric, you know, I'm a serious, I feel totally lost. I mean, it's shit, but you know, um, if I'm asking for help, it's only because, and they'd be, I mean, serious shit, I am totally lost. You know, <laughs> and uh, I just keep singing it to them. I'm in serious shit, I feel totally lost. Serious shit, lost, you know. And this went on for, for a fair, for quite a while. And the manager, the manager, who I referred to previously as a bit of an asshole, said, you're not your problem. Your problem, you're too soft. You need to be strong with these girls. You need to show them, tell them. I said, well, look, if you think you can do better, you have a go, right? So he went in, and of course, within five minutes, both girls are weeping, crying. He's shouting. And then, of course, he went and we went back. I'm in serious shit. I feel totally serious shit. For hours, but we got it in the end. It took it took a long time, and they were game. They they in the end they they, they we ended up finishing the record in, in my house. I've got a I've got a place in L.A. that uh, has a studio in it as well. A house I've had it for twenty years, and we call it the magic cupboard because another session was going on downstairs in, in my house, so we had to do their vocals in the cupboard upstairs, and. Uh, <laughs> So to this day, it's called The Magic Cupboard. Because, of course, the record did incredibly well. We sold seven and a half million albums or something off the back of that single. It surprised me. I had, I had no idea it would be so big. But before you knew that, um, during the recording, I mean, that doesn't really sound like the kind of job you want to, you know, get up for in the morning. Like, did you at any stage during a project go like, fucking hell, like, why on earth am I doing this to myself? Oh, well, 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 well there was a point w with this project because there was a point with it where, where, where it, we'd finished it, we'd spent all the time, and it hadn't worked for whatever reason. I couldn't figure out the chorus, and I had a very complicated lyric on the chorus that went, all the things she said running through my head while I'm lying in my bed, and the sun is red in red, and I'm in this, and it didn't work. And, 
and we all kind of gave up a bit, you know, well, we tried. And then, and then I went back, I remember, same thing, let's have one more go, is it? I went back to the Russian record and I listened to it and I realized that they'd repeated one line over and over again. And I thought, well, that's the way to do it. All the things she said, all the things she said, running through my head, running through my head, running through my head. Uh, but the problem was they'd gone back to Russia and they hadn't sung it. Um, but thank God for technology. A new program had just arrived, uh, Pitch in Time or something like that it was called, and you could pitch things, so we repitched their voices to make them sing the tune, you know, the right lyrics. So a lot of that's, you know, their voices. Are, the the vocal track of that, I should get the multi-track, the vocal track of that is like a work of art. Um, Rob Orton, you know, mixer, who, who worked with me at the time, mixes uh, Lady Gaga now, he does all of her stuff. He he sort of cut his teeth on that. And we did all kinds of things. We found the problem with them with them was that they couldn't pronounce certain English syllables in English. And so so I got an American singer to sing the song with a girl that had the rock voice. And then you would never know it, but occasionally I used bits of her voice. I'd use the start of one of the Russian girls, but then a syllable would be from somebody else. You know, what do you what can you do? You got you know it needed to be finished. I had to do it. I told them. First of all, we sincerely hope there was a little bit of inspirational peace in the past hours. And I'm we, sorry, I hope I didn't go on for too long. And we very much thank you. Trevor Horn, everybody. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Uh, before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Madrid. But we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, uh, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, if you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.